The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect of 94.9 CHRW. And because even though the public is two-thirds in favor of decriminalizing marijuana, that's the great thing on top of which is that everybody, most people agree with me. In five years, I've never had a single person call me up and I have a very published number and said, I think you're doing a bad job. I don't like what you're doing. I think my kids are in danger because you exist. I never, ever get that. I've never had a negative comment brought to me ever from anyone in five years in what I do. And this is pretty, pretty remarkable, really. Because in the United States, like I say, they, I could get the death sentence, whereas in Canada, I don't even have anybody who personally thinks I'm doing a bad thing. Not that I've ever met. You know, it's possible they're too polite to bring it up, but generally, I have never heard of someone coming up to me and saying, I think you're a menace. I think what you do is harmful to our community. I never... It's Thursday, April 3rd, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today on this first really day that feels like spring in London, Ontario, Canada here. Today on the show, it's To the Moon, Alice, going to talk about some very interesting upcoming developments in uh, private space flight, believe it or not, folks. I think most of us who are alive today may actually have an opportunity to visit the moon or at least go into space going to take a little fizz into physics later on and talk a little, take a little glimpse at the nature of space and time and what scientists are telling about telling us about it today and also i want to talk out of the mouth of babes some truth on global warming and the rationing of electricity a little later on but first of all i want to talk about mark the menace of course mark uh is Plea was nixed by the federal government as it showed up on the front page of the london free press saturday march 29th Emery Plea Next says the uh, article by Greg Joyce, uh, quote, Vancouver former Londoner Mark Emery, British Columbia self-proclaimed Prince of Pot, says the Canadian government has nixed a plea bargain with the U.S. authorities that would have meant five years in prison. Emery is charged in the U.S. with selling seeds over the Internet. He said yesterday he was willing to accept a five-year deal, but that the Canadian government was not. I was willing to accept the deal that would put me in jail for five years on a 10-year sentence, mostly served in Canada, Emery said at a news conference in the Vapor Lounge, newly opened above the downtown headquarters where he sells marijuana paraphernalia. Now, is there some irony in that, folks, or, or what is it? <laughs> Michelle Rainey and Greg Williams, his associates and co-accused, are also wanted in the U.S. Reports say they have been offered sentences in the three- to five-month range in exchange for guilty pleas. Now that represents a big change in their status with respect to this extradition because in the past it sounded like they were going to share the same fate as Mark. And of course, uh, for those of you interested in the entire story on this, we covered it here on Just Right on uh, on our November 1st broadcast, which you can see, or hear rather, at our on our online website, Just Right media.org where you can get a whole archive of all the shows online and of course 519-661-3600 is the number to call us if you want to join in on the conversation but mark says that the americans were receptive and that all that was required was for this for this deal to go down was for the conservative government to rubber stamp it 
Emery said. All we needed was the government to agree to this, and they refused. Emery said Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Conservative government is pursuing get-tough policy on drug use and is upset by his long-running campaign for marijuana legalization. Emery said Canadian authorities have known for years about his business. The government is far from innocent in this situation, he said. And he said he has paid more than $500,000 in taxes between 1999 to 2005. And he says, and I put on my income tax declaration that I was a marijuana seed vendor. I used to send, and still do send, over ten, for over 10 years now, every member of parliament gets a copy of my magazine and the seed catalog in it. I have to tell you, the first time I saw that seed catalog, I, I was amazed that he wasn't already locked up, because there it was. It's just like, uh, you know, going out and picking your favorite brand of wine and, and in a very slick and professionally produced magazine. In another news article by Ian Mulgrew, Can West News Service, which appeared March 27th, Emery's quoted as saying, quote, The Americans targeted me for my political views and activism. And now my own government won't go along with an American-endorsed deal because they want me gone. It's hard for me to believe that marijuana is even illegal, much less that I'm facing the possibility of life in prison. And I'm stunned that our government can't deal with the cannabis with the cannabis issue in our society in an adult way. Kirk Tusaw, one of the lawyers involved in the defense team, said the government's stance seemed to run counter to the country's traditional commitment to freedom, justice, and compassion. The last time Emery was convicted in Canada of selling cannabis seeds back in 1998, he was given a $2,000 fine. And in a sidebar, on uh, the front page of the Saturday Free Press was a mini-headline. It says, The London Connection, which outlined very briefly just some of Mark's uh, past record as a political activist. And in there, you would find that, quote, owner of City Lights, a used bookstore on Richmond Street from 75 to 92 when he sold it and moved to Sumatra. He waged a high-profile campaign against the London bid to host the Pan Am Games. Mandatory downtown merchant fees to just to, to beautify the core and Ontario's then ban on Sunday shopping for which he spent time in jail. He was convicted in 1992 for selling copies of a Two Live Crew album, a recording deemed obscene by the courts. He founded the Freedom Party of Ontario and he challenged Canada's marijuana laws. In 2003, he fired up an oversized joint outside the London police station. Now. Of course, regular listeners to this show may have already heard my very detailed, though partial, chronicling of Mark's political campaigns and of my personal relationship with him on our November 1st show, which, of course, as I mentioned before, you can just visit, you know, www.justrightmedia.org and uh, listen to that show anytime you want. There's a couple follow-up shows, too, that you'll see uh, cover the Mark Emery situation. Now, of course, the significance of firing up an oversized joint outside the London police station, and I remember Mark did it as well outside the London courthouse, uh, it's not the fact that he smoked an illegal substance under the noses of authorities, basically. But what's interesting is that they did not charge him with anything. That's what makes it interesting. And to suggest that, that this kind of inactivity, this non-response, does not send a message, I think, is sheer lunacy. Basically, our legal authorities, that is, the Canadian ones, are saying it's not worth our effort. And in saying so, I think they generally reflect a public, uh, uh, Canadian public opinion anyway on the subject. 
uh, you know, a few screaming objectors aside. And that was certainly the attitude of uh, some of the clips you will have, you'll hear in some of those earlier uh, episodes of Just Right we talked about, where in fact uh, you hear one of the head police in, uh, in the Vancouver area just saying, well, Mark Emery's not the kind of person that concerns us. But, you know, I, I think it's too early at least with the information I have at hand now, and of course that could change in an instant, no question. But I think it's a little too early to assume the worst with respect to Mark's ultimate legal fate. Maybe I'm a bit of an optimist, okay? <laughs> Maybe I'm expecting uh, too much of Harper in the sense of applying reason and common sense to this situation. But here's how I might see the situation. If I put my foot in the other man's shoes, as it were, and the other man in this case is Harper or the conservative government, if you will. Emery's deal with the U.S. authorities, while basically being a deal for him, wasn't really any deal at all for Canadian taxpayers or the Canadian government, if you think about it. With most of his negotiated sentence that he wanted initially to have been served in Canada, you have to ask, and I did ask, why do we have to pay for American law enforcement on Canadian soil? Why are we putting a Canadian in a Canadian jail at the behest of Americans over a law that is over in America? You know, why would Canada want to obligate itself to these kinds of deals? Is this the kind of precedent we want to set? And, and at a time when sovereignty is increasingly becoming a touchy issue between Canada and the U.S. over Arctic rights, over anti-terrorist legislation, free trade, and passport issues, you know, uh, the Emory conundrum is a particularly sticky situation for the government. Now, if I were Stephen Harper, I'd be deeply concerned about two fundamental issues. And the first one is, of course, the sheer injustice of extraditing Emery, given the nature of the crime and of the nature of the law being broken. And the second thing is the necessity of sending a clear message, both to Canadians and to the international community, that Canada intends to remain a sovereign nation. If Emery is extradited to the U.S., I think both of these issues will have been resolved in the negative bad news all the way. Now, none of the articles I've read so far have been explicit on where Mark stands right now, so I'm assuming we're back to square one, which is where Emery was in the first place, meaning that he must count on the Minister of Justice to intervene and not rubber stamp his extradition. And the details of this we already dealt with on the previous shows. So, so for the time being, I'm just going to put on a big smile, pretend I'm optimistic, and sit back to see just how much Harper's government is capable of showing principles and leadership rather than being followers, which is another image problem he's having with the, you know, with, especially with respect to U.S. and Canadian relations and the Afghanistan war and all sorts of other issues. And once again, you know, prominent white or sort of right, right-wing papers like the National Post have written editorials opposing Emory's extradition, as did Belleville lawyer Karen Selleck, who appeared on this show as well, about that issue. And by the way, there seems to be a commonly held, I think, a false belief that the right wing in general is always opposed to drug legalization. I don't know if that's so true. In fact, just a few years back, both myself and Mark Emery were, among others, featured in a national left-wing publication. It's now defunct, and its name escapes me. I still have it back at the office, a real slick magazine. But we were in an article titled, The Right Wing is on Drugs. I think that was actually the cover article. Also mentioned on the right, thinkers were like uh, thinkers like the late libertarian Nobel economist Milton Friedman and conservative William Buckley, long known for their opposition to drug prohibition. 
And it would do well as well to remember that under Bill Clinton's Democratic left-wing government, that more marijuana possession charges were laid than under any other previous Republican administration. So I don't know what kind of message that basically sends. Now, of course, as always, it is a right-wing conservative who started all the trouble in the first place. And for that, we can blame mostly today U.S. President Richard Nixon, whose proclaimed war on drugs, in fact, turned out to be a war against both Americans and against the rest of the world at large. Oh boy, what a tragedy, I think, uh, we step into with all these silly drug laws. Doesn't sound like we're going to get out of it soon. But when we come back after this non-commercial break, we'll be getting into the politics of electricity and a little bit of truth in global warming. Had a personal experience on the weekend that was a little disturbing. I want to tell you about it. Be back right after this. Thing is, I've learned in any case that you should never worry about getting elected because I've never met anybody who was elected who really got anything done they ever wanted to get out done. I've never seen it. I don't know anybody who knows anybody. You know, I, I, I talk to politicians and I say, did you ever really get that one dream bit of legislation passed that you think makes the world a freer place? No, you never see that. They never have that answer for you. I've never met somebody who went in with high ideals who came out with the same ideals. They usually come out a foot shorter and a lot more burning, that stooping bowed over shoulder look. Being a revolutionary to me is just far more fulfilling. Well, this has, been, this has just been catastrophic, as you know. Uh, all of the experts from Energy Probe, from the generators, the distributors, the transmitters, uh, uh, we have right now the distributors, the local utilities, are, lo are capped, are, are looking at about $500 million in investments for metering and et cetera that was needed to be installed just to accommodate uh, a, a free market for electricity pricing. And now they're saying, well, now you've capped it at 4.3 cents. Where are we going to get the money? Municipally, I think we're going to be looking at higher taxes. I think we're going to be looking at much higher taxes and debt uh, provincially. And we're certainly not going to fix the electricity supply problem because Ernie Eves and now Dalton McGinty and his liberals have or, or sort of just unanimously backed him on this. They've put this price cap in there, which has frightened the daylights out of new generators. We will not see new electricity generation in this province. And the only way that uh, he is going to be able to save his skin uh, whether we're talking Eves or McGinty, because they're on the exact same page on this, is if uh, they bring these nuclear reactors online, which is the, another huge mistake, because if you look at the history of uh, electricity and how we got into this mess in the first place, we were spending billions upon billions to run these uh, price-inefficient, cost-inefficient nuclear stations, when in reality what we needed to be focusing on was more cleaner sources, uh, renewable sources of energy. Uh, we shouldn't have been sinking, sinking $2 billion dollars of taxpayer money into uh, putting Pickering A up years late, mm -hmm. way over budget, when in fact even when we get it up and running it's going to be very expensive to, to generate the electricity. Well, I think literally we've gone from a government led by Mike Harris that was in, interested in change to a government led by Ernie Eves that is interested in managing. Uh, he's doing that because he's trying to distance, distance himself from uh, choice in education. He's trying to distance himself from some of the reforms that were going on in healthcare. And he's certainly now trying to distance himself from his own party's decision uh, to uh, open up the uh, price of electricity to uh, competition, which was wrong, not because uh, uh, there wasn't something to be done, but because he did the wrong thing. The right thing would have been to explain to the public how they can cap their own fees by entering into contracts with retailers mm -hmm. 
and to explain to them that this is a short-term bumpy ride that is the result not of free market uh, change, but this is, this is a pattern of 20 or 30 years of government-controlled, uh, price-capped, overly taxed electricity suddenly coming onto your bill, not partly taxed and partly on your bill, but the whole thing is showing. It's transparent. You can see it now. This is what you've really been paying for electricity all along. All along, yeah. And now all he's really doing is fooling people. We put a, a three, 4.3 cent cap on the bill, but you keep paying, the government keeps paying whatever the generator charges. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really just a, a bit of a shell game. And ultimately, all he's really done now is, now instead of paying just for your own bill at 4.3 cents, you're going to be paying for General Motors. You're going to be paying for all of the industrial, I mean, residential consumption in Ontario is 27%. The rest is commercial and industrial. And when a good portion of it is paid through the tax system, guess what? The guy is doing his part, trying to keep the lights low, turn off the lights, and just generate a little bit of electricity, use a little bit of electricity, pay a small bill, is now paying a small bill, but paying a lot of, uh, paying for a lot of electricity that other people use through the tax system. Who's hurt most? The poor. Ironically, they're now going to be paying more for their electricity with price caps than they would have been paying without them. Welcome back. That was... Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever actually talking to Jim Chapman on his cable show way back in 2002, just after Ernie Eves had uh, taken over the, the provincial government. And just about everything he said to him at that time has come to pass one by one. Government's got its back up. We're actually short of electricity. And you may wonder how that leads into my next theme because it might sound a little unrelated at first. But first, uh, welcome back. My name's Bob Metz. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you'd like to call in. I had a personal experience, at least an experience within my immediate family over the past weekend or so, that left a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. Uh, with respect to an issue that I've pretty much had a lot of fun with and scoffed at uh, on last week's show, for example, and on many shows previous to that. I believe it is the issue effectively encompassing all of issues on today's political agenda, even though, I'll get this, even though polls apparently report that this issue never shows up high as a priority among the public, but you'd never know it from what you read in the paper given the media coverage on global warming and climate change, of course. Now, this past weekend on Saturday night was what I called the Endarkenment Hour on Planet Earth, a symbolic gesture that we actually care about such issues when, in fact, those polls show us that we don't. On this point, I'm just the messenger, folks. Don't be yelling at me. <laughs> but here's my story, my personal story about how it relates to uh, our Endarkenment Night on the weekend. Chapter 1. I have a six-year-old grandson who attends grade one in the Thames Valley school system here, the public school system. Last Friday, and there was a story about this in the Free Press on March 28th, it was titled, It's Lights Out for Most Schools in the Thames Valley Board Today, end quote. Well, on last Friday, they turned out the lights for the kids in the class for about an hour. But apparently, that wasn't all that they did. When my grandson arrived home from school that day and told his his mother, my daughter, of course, about the lights-off exercise, she assured him that there was really nothing to be afraid of and that we're not running out of energy. And he became quite a bit upset and a bit angry with his mother's statement and didn't really know how to deal with it, and they sort of semi-resolved it at that point. Now on to Chapter 2. 
On Earth Day night, Saturday night, my grandson was spending the night out at his great-grandma's. Happens to be my mother. And although my mom almost always has most of her lights off, uh, my grandson noticed that the golf course that was across the street from where she lived uh, didn't turn off any of their lights. And the next day he told his mom about this, and he asked his mom if she had turned off the lights. And to which she honestly replied, she said, no, I didn't. Now here's a kicker. Then my grandson says to his mother, quote, then you're one of the bad people, end quote. You're one of the bad people, out of the mouth of babes. Now, I don't know about you folks, but to me, this just had that Nazi smell about it. Remember when they sent kids home to report on their parents and stuff? There was just something bad about it. It's a great irony that when I last discussed this subject, I stressed the importance of staking out a moral position on the issue and that the political conflict is, in fact, a moral and philosophical one, not about scientific or logical reasons, in, in essence. And that's why, you know, you're either bad or you're good. You're either on side or you're not. And quite frankly, the very complex issue of global warming is not a subject that either I nor my daughter had ever really considered discussing with any six-year-old, since uh, the factors that have led us to our current political situation on global warming are, of course, very complex and have a history going back a long way, certainly more than the six years than, than he's been on the planet. Which leads me to Chapter 3 of my story. After dropping the you're one of the bad people bomb on his mother, they sat down and they had a discussion, such as they could, on the issue. After it was generally resolved that what he had to do was sort of start learn, learn to think for himself and that there is a way to think for yourself and to decide what's true and what's false. And uh, you know, he, on his own, he kind of apologized to his mom for his previous moral <laughs> indictment. And everything is sort of okay again, but or is it? I'm not really sure. I guess the good news is that, in a way, my grandson is starting to learn to think for himself, you know, by challenging the wisdom and authority of his mother, I guess. If you take that in isolation, that might be a positive step in the right direction for kids that are growing up. But during the conversation they had over the whole global warming issue, my daughter learned that my grandson's understanding about why we're being asked to turn off the lights was that, quote, they need more time to make electricity, end quote. And I was thinking, wow, out of the mouth of babes once again. I would have expected him to be talking about CO2, the melting ice caps, the coming global weather catastrophes and the like. But no, you know, they need more time to make electricity. Where he got this from, neither I nor my daughter have any idea. So my first assumption was that he might have picked this up in class. Though in subsequent conversations since then, I'm starting to get the impression he might have picked it up from some kind of general conversations he's been having on the issue, but I don't know where he picked that up. Now, of course, if there is any real issue behind the global warming frenzy, this is the real one, the, the coming shortage of and rationing of electricity. Uh, Earth's, Earth Hour Soft Fascism, writes Peter Foster in the March 26th National Post, and I really found these words almost rather inspiring. Quote, what needs raising is not so much awareness as knowledge. People are woefully ignorant about both the uncertainties of climate change science and the implications of climate change politics. Earth Hour is symbolic of a spreading soft fascism, aided by well-meaning individuals and well-meaning and or cynical or scared corporations. Earth Hour was in fact pioneered last year in Sydney by World Wildlife Fund Australia, advised by advertising giant Leo Burnett. 
Lou Burnett's chairman, Nigel Marsh, demonstrated his skill both in semantic perversion and moral obfuscation when he declared, quote, I'm an optimist about climate change. The human race eventually abolished slavery and gave women the vote. We eventually worked it out, end quote. Do you get the implication? Deny the dubious science or dangerous politics of anthropogenic climate change, and you're the kind of person who could support slavery and keep women barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, end quote. Or you could just be one of those bad people. The article goes on to talk about the gross exaggerations about how much power was saved in Sydney, Australia, as a result of Earth Hour. And I don't want to get into all of that stuff. It's, it's almost meaningless, the statistics they're throwing at us. But he concludes, quote, I would suggest that the biggest current threat to our planet is not either climate change or a financial crisis, but the mindless conformist tendency to support ideas such as Earth Hour, which are aimed at levers of both electrical and political power. If you love civilization, freedom, and the use of reason, keep all the lights you need on Saturday. Take back the night. Oh, there's a phrase for you, end quote. And, of course, editor Lori Goldstein weighed in on the pending energy crisis by writing in the Free Press on March 25th that, quote, McGinty blundered during the 2003 campaign by unrealistically promising to close Ontario's coal-fired electricity plants by 2007, now delayed until 2014. McGinty has only started the process to construct a new nuclear plant, which optimistically will take until 2018 to build. Now, what, what I want to know is how my six-year-old grandson figured out we need time to make more electricity. Who was, was he reading the paper or something? I don't know. All this could plunge Ontario into an energy crisis if McGinty loses control of all the balls he's juggling, writes Goldstein. But while Liberal and NDP governments in Ontario contributed to the mess, it was two conservative regimes, the Bill Davis Tories from 71 to 85 and the Harris Eves Tories from 95 to 2003 that were the most responsible, which is, of course, is exactly what McKeever said in the opening clip of the show. Quote, the root problem was the innovation killing $38.1 billion debt rung up by the now defunct Ontario Hydro over the years, including the exploding cost of the Darlington nuclear plant. Started by the Davis Tories in 1978, it was completed in 1993, 10 years late and 576% over budget costing $14.4 billion. But the Harris Eve Tories, who from 95 uh, to 2003 totally botched energy deregulation and privatization, made things worse. End quote. And finally, consider the implications of London Free Press, uh, this anticipatory Earth Day headline, quote, In Action No Longer Acceptable, end quote, written by Deborah Van Brank on March 28th. Quoting Tara Wood, a spokesperson for World Wildlife Fund Canada, who sponsors Earth Hour here, the, well, I can't call it anything but a threatening statement, but it's followed by the insistence that turning off your lights is the minimum expected sacrifice that we should expect to make and that we'll be forced to do more in the future. Now, what I found interesting is that Earth Day was, after the event, of course, called a success, 
with a 2% reduction being recorded here in London. By 2%, they mean 2% on less power was used in that hour than on the same day the, the year previous. Now, whether that's even a relevant uh, statistic to anything, who knows? And is 2% even uh, you know, significant in any way? Maybe the weather was a lot worse last year and we had more heating and lighting re required. I, I, don't re I don't know, but it just it seems very arbitrary to me. And if 2% is a success, I really have to ask my question, what would it take to be called a failure? I mean, how, how low do you have to go before it's a failure? I'll tell you from political parties' uh, points of view, you get 2% or even 5%, you're not even a factor. So why is this a big factor? Because, of course, it's all about pushing an agenda that they want to push. So take a break from this now, and we will move from socialism to capitalism when we return after this brief non-commercial break. Nothing since the Russians were the first to put a living creature in space, the dog Laika in space, end of the 50s. That dog went up there, orbited the Earth twice, but no preparations were made to return it safely, and it shot down through the ozone layer, was burnt up, and died. Which is sad, but also lucky in a way. Because if aliens had intercepted that Russian dog, they would have assumed that the planet Earth was ruled by a race of creatures who like to lick their own genitals, <laughs> rub themselves against your leg as a form of friendly greeting, sniff each other's asses, and yet had somehow managed to develop the technology for space travel. And the Americans were the first to put a man on the moon, 1969. American crew went up there. They all returned safely. The mission was a success with no loss of human life, which is sad, but... <laughs> we're lucky in a way, because if aliens had intercepted Americans... They would have assumed that the planet Earth was ruled by a race of massively obese creatures in Hawaiian shirts <laughs> who had no idea of the geography of their own planet and yet had somehow managed to develop the technology for space travel. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we'll be with you from now till noon. It's funny how people like to make fun of the Americans, of course, and it's always easy to do, but of course the Americans generally tend to come through with things, and uh, it looks like America's on its way to private space flight. And one of the things that caught my attention on this was, I was going to actually do a story on this earlier because uh, it had caught my attention a couple months ago, and I sort of put it aside. And then, sure enough, on the front page, no less, of the London Free Press, March 25th, Deborah Van Brank article, headline, Fly Me to the Moon in 2029, question mark. And the article states that, quote, private flights to the moon may be available to non-scientists, that means to you and me or anybody, 
By the end of the 2020s, says Peter Warden, director of the NASA Ames Research Station in California, to a group of physics students and faculty right here at the University of Western Ontario, which of course is where this show is being broadcast from, the campus of. He said, quote, NASA is on target to return people to the moon by 2020, the first crewed trip since 1972. But NASA might not be the first one back with a, with a moon visit. With as many as 20 wealth, wealthy individuals and companies around the world expressing an interest in space exploration, I think private interests are going to beat us to the lunar surface, he said. And they won't just be keen astronomy buffs. It's NASA's unstated policy that the moon is available for economic activity, Warden said, answering a question about space's legal frontier. There will ultimately be room for regular citizens, not just astronauts, to hitch commercial flights, Warden predicted. We think we're at the verge of a really interesting private efforts to move forward. In the meantime, there's a new kind of space race. With private companies scrambling to reap commercial rewards from otherworldly exploration, we are not going to succeed in settling the solar system as a species without significant private sector involvement, Warden said. The U.S. Space Agency plans to reach the moon with probes, buzz it, buzz by it rather, with a crewed exploration vehicle, and in 2020 land there with people. Warden said the moon and near-Earth objects, which includes asteroids as well will be a good learning experience, a stepping stone to exploring Mars and beyond. This is really the first step to extending human presence in the solar system and the first step towards settling the solar system. Now that was basically the meat of the article from the London Free Press, but I want to contrast that against another article I dug out of The Economist that appeared just this past January 26, 2008, and the headline of that read, uh, Starship Enterprise, the next generation. And if you want to see a picture of what I'm talking about right now, you can actually visit the site, uh, www.justrightmedia.org. And the picture that will show up there is what is called the Virgin Galactic, the very spaceship that's going to be going up, believe it or not, folks, within the next 12 to 24 months, taking paying passengers into space. And the thing looks, it's, it's beautiful looking. So if you get a chance to check it out, uh, check it out there. At, uh, that's out of The Economist, um, January 26, 2008. That, uh, it's an artist's conception, of course, but it looks very much like a photograph. And uh, here's a story that accompanied that picture and uh, the whole story behind it. Uh, the way Will Whitehorn tells it, the story began in 2003 in Mojave, California, or California on a visit to Scaled Composites a company with a reputation for designing and building futuristic and sometimes wacky-looking aircraft. Mr. Whitehorn is one of the top brass in Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Group and Virgin Atlantic. Sir Richard's airline was sponsoring Global Flyer, a scaled composites creation, on a non-stop voyage around the world. On his way out of the factory, Mr. Whitehorn saw something unusual and asked what it was. Bert Rutan, head of the Scaled Composites, told him it was a spaceship. He was building it for another customer, but that he couldn't say any more about it. Well, Mr. Rutan's customer turned out to be Paul Allen, one of the founders of Microsoft. When Spaceship One, as the craft was called, reached space for a second time on October 4, 2004, it won the $10 million Ansari X Prize. The craft was taken to a high altitude by White Knight, 
a more or less conventional aircraft and then dropped, whereupon its engines ignited to shoot it 100 kilometers above the planet, which is about 60 miles, and thus officially into space. After a short flight, it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and glided down to land on a conventional runway. Manned space travel thus has moved from the realm of governments to private enterprise. However, Mr. Allen was interested only in proving that the spaceship technology would work, not at this point in exploiting it commercially himself. That left Mr. Rutan with a very cool spaceship on his hand, but no way of making money from it. Mr. Whitehorn and Sir Richard were intrigued. Virgin Galactic, a company in the Virgin Stable and which was headed by Mr. Whitehorn, decided to license the technology for Spaceship One and White Knight. Virgin Galactic said it wanted to offer commercial suborbital flights to paying passengers by the end of the decade. And that's this decade they're talking about. Virgin Galactic has since accumulated a number of commercial rivals in the space tourism market. One of them is Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, who is building a competing suborbital spaceship at a ranch in Texas. His space company, called Blue Origin, is so secretive that it will not even answer questions about its logo. Now, in a subheading called Fly Me, Fly Me to the Moon, it says, The combination of a, of a carrier aircraft and spaceship to get into space is sort of like building a two-stage rocket. Air-launched rockets have a long history. Spaceship One and White Knight were, in essence, vastly improved and much cheaper versions of the X-15 rocket that uh, set speed and altitude records way back in the early 60s, and the B-52 bomber that carried the rocket plane under its wing. But pure rockets, like the one that uh, lifts the space shuttle, won out because the space race between America and Russia emphasized speed over costs, and rockets were proven technology having already been developed as intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, I remember uh, quite back a while ago, there was some debate in certain communities about uh, the whole wisdom of winning the race to space, as Kennedy did, because uh, apparently a lot of research had already gone in uh, to the X-15 and things like that, where they figured if they were just given the time, we'd already have been flying into space. So some people think that the U.S. race to space actually set us back in time, but there's another debate for another time. Uh, nevertheless, about these rockets, uh, you know, they consume a huge amount of power as they claw their way up through the Earth's atmosphere. By contrast, a rocket lifted by a plane with wings before being launched can be made much smaller and lighter. The plane itself is light because its engines breathe air. It thus needs to carry less fuel than a rocket and no chemical oxidant to burn the fuel, as a rocket would. Each craft, plane and rocket, can therefore be optimized for its own job, which is easier than designing a single vehicle that has to make a lot of compromises to do both. End quote. The article then goes on to describe the different design styles of Spaceship One, White Knight, and Spaceship Two. Spaceship Two is described as a ship that will, quote, accommodate two pilots at the front and also six passengers who will have room enough to bounce around in zero gravity. With final tests concluding over the next 12 to 24 months, they expect it will only be around a year before paying customers can start going into space. And that's really something. You know, the more, when I look at that picture of that uh, spacecraft again, it sure isn't like, you know, those primitive boxes we envisaged of the early space travelers. I mean, this thing looks as modern as anything can get, except, of course, for the interior technology, which is bound to improve over time. Um, now, what they say here is each spaceship could eventually be capable of making two trips into space every day, and the launch aircraft three or four flights. They could operate from a number of airports and spaceports around the world. 
Virgin Galactic believes the fleet it has ordered should be large enough to furnish its space tourism business in the early years. Trips are expected to cost, here it comes, how much is this trip going to cost? Oh, about $200,000 to start off with. And hundreds of people have already put down a total of $30 million just in deposits alone. Stephen Attenberg, Attenborough, Virgin Galactic's commercial director, says the spaceship is revolutionary because it's able to take not just people into space, but other payloads too. With costs br brought down low enough, it could make even launching tiny satellites financially viable. These could be sent up by all sorts of organizations, including universities like the university we're at here for research projects and the like. Launching at a high altitude has many advantages for space tourists and commercial loads alike. Using an aircraft to take up a rocket can avoid the numerous weather-induced delays and costs that get in the way of rockets fired from the ground. Aircraft can climb above bad weather to a more suitable launch position, and nor do they need specially built reinforced launch pads because basically uh, any suitable runway will do. Now, of course, one of the questions they answer is what kind of person can go into space? What kind of health do you have to have? Can anybody do it? How, how old do I have to be? What kind, of, what kind of condition do I have to be in? Well, strangely enough, they find that despite, it's a bit of a rough ride, we'll get to that in a sec, but they think most, about 90% of us, regardless of your age, of our ages, are suitable for space travel based on this very system. Many of Virgin Galactic's early customers have been put through a human centrifuge to test their reactions and tolerance to the forces that they would experience on a suborbital trip. And that includes dealing with G-forces like 6.5 times that of Earth's gravity. And mostly they report that they cope very well. The, the simulation of forces likely to experience on the new Virgin Galactic spaceship suggests more people than had been previously imagined would be able to endure, endure the trip. The accepted view is that only the fittest could withstand 6 Gs through the chest and 3.5 Gs from head to toe. Uh, the second smaller force is the one they consider the tougher one because it pushes all the blood downwards and away from the head, and that's what causes uh, sometimes unconsciousness, especially depending on the speed of your acceleration. Nevertheless, the passengers who tested well at SASTAR included a 77-year-old woman and James Lovelock, a scientist and author who is 88 years old. NASTAR reckons that more than 90% of the population could handle a suborbital flight. Nor do they see any reason why children as young as five or six could not go too. Air sickness will not be a problem, they suggest. Virgin Galactic's uh, Will Whitehorn says that one operator's zero-gravity airplane rides ha has virtually eliminated all the vomiting. Oh boy, that's, that's not very pleasing. Thanks to a combination of diet, drugs, training, and methodology. So basically, uh, you know... No reason, then, they say, short of a few hundred thousand dollars, not to book a flight right now, they say. So it's interesting, isn't it, that here we are going into space, and the thing that might make it more most possible for the regular person, the average person, is, of all things, tourism. And I think tourism will be the thing that does bring development into space first, and industry will, of course, go along with it. Another thing about technology, too, is, you know, technology you can't just put in a box and close it and just keep it to yourself in an isolation. For technology to work, everyone's got a share in it. And if you don't know what I mean by that principle, consider what your cell phone would be like if no one else had one. <laughs> what could you do with it, right? Not too much. So there's some of the principles involved in getting some people out of space. Now, when we come back, 
want to update you on some things dealing with physics and metaphysics and the nature of space-time and what our scientists are telling us they are learning about the universe back right after this. We have way too many stupid products in this country, and the best example is an airplane-making company in Montreal. Came up with this new plane, I swear to God. Their big sales pitch for that plane is it can go around the world without refueling. Ooh, around the world without refueling. Gee, I guess they're aiming at that huge market of travelers from Montreal. <laughs> All the way to freaking Montreal, right? Typical Canadian product, completely useless. I mean, think about it. The farthest place you can go on this planet anyway is halfway around the world, right? I mean, if you need to go any further than that, take the other way around. It's quicker! Marvelous, old boy. Hmm. Yes, but what is it? Well, it has to do with time. Oh, I've always maintained what this nation needs is a, a reliable timepiece. Hmm. Navy needs one. <laughs> Army needs one. Uh, for the artillery, you know. Well, you couldn't do better, George. So that's why you've been in hiding, eh? That's very clever of you, indeed. I don't think George is referring to a new type of timepiece. No, David. When I speak of time, gentlemen, I'm referring to the fourth dimension. Go on, George. Well, the difficulty in explaining the fourth dimension is that it cannot be seen or felt. If you don't mind, George, would you refresh me on the, on the first three dimensions? Oh. Really, Philby, surely they taught you something at school? <laughs> Suppose you explain it, Doctor. Huh? Oh, certainly. <laughs> well, for example, when I move in a straight line, uh, forward or backward, that's one dimension. And when I move to the left or right, two dimensions. And when I move up or down, three dimensions. Uh, for instance, that box. Well, that box has three dimensions, length, breadth, and height. Yes, but what is the fourth dimension? Oh, well, that's it. Oh, that's mere theory. No one really knows what the fourth dimension is, or even that it exists. On the contrary, Doctor. The fourth dimension is as real and true a dimension as any of the other three. In fact, they couldn't exist without it. What do you mean? Well, let's take that box. It has the first three dimensions, as you said. Oh, all right, but what's in that box? I'm coming to that. Let's consider this first. Why is it that we usually ignore the fourth dimension? Because we have no freedom of movement within it. You see, we can move in the other three. Up, down, forward, sideways, backward, as the doctor said. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. Do you follow me, Bridie? No. George... You've given a most lucid explanation and all that, but I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Walter, look, there are many things in this world you don't understand, aren't there? Yes, quite. Quite a number. Well, you don't refuse to believe in them because of that, do you? No, not if I can see the proof with my own eyes. Good, Walter. Gentlemen, all I'm asking you to do now is 
to witness a demonstration of the possibility of movement within the fourth dimension. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. I'm Bob Metz, and I'm glad you're joining us today. A little bit of a different subject here. You know, when we talk about science and even philosophy, everything's basically based on the world of reality, if it's going to work at all. Uh, there, you have physics, and you, of course, have metaphysics. Metaphysics is basically that branch of philosophy that investigates principles of reality transcending those of any particular science and traditionally includes cosmology and ontology which is the philosophical theory of reality and that definition's out of Funk and Wagnall's dictionary. Now if we want to lay the groundwork of knowledge as was suggested previously on the whole thing about um, global warming you know, uh, it's not an easy thing to do, to grasp the nature of the universe, and I think the difficulty in it leads to many belief systems, depending on, you know, how you really think we all came into existence here. Now, some people get headaches and hangovers from drinking too much. Well, here's another way to get one. Try to wrap your head around some of these very sobering realities, or at least theories of reality, that are, to the best of my knowledge, among the most current and credible in helping us understand the nature of our universe. And I would begin with asking, you know, do you know where you live? I mean, I don't mean your street address, and I'm talking about a much larger scale than that, bigger than the country you live in, bigger than the continent you live on. On a cosmological scale, would you be able to answer the question, where do you live? Do you know where you live on a planetary scale? Well, just in case you're not sure, we all live on the planet Earth, which orbits the star Sol, which we call our Sun. Sun, of course, is not the name of our star. A sun is any star, uh, especially one that's in the center of a system of planets and stuff re revolving around it. But our sun, of course, uh, Sol, is in turn one of billions and trillions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So if you ever find your way lost out there in the Andromeda galaxy somewhere, now you know, where, now you know your home address, at least in, in human layman terms. Ancient peoples used to believe that our planet was basically the center of the universe and that everything revolved around us. And then, of course, we learned that that was wrong, and now guess what? We're learning again that maybe, well, maybe it's right, but not in exactly the sense that they believed. Back in 1929, an astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble made a fascinating, profound discovery, in which, and which is why the famous Hubble telescope is named after him. He provided the first objectively measured data which proved something that astronomers were already theorizing on, and that was basically that the universe is expanding. Now, I've borrowed a lot of my information on this from uh, some of the physics and astronomy books I have at home, and a lot of this is from uh, a book called The Astronomers, which was a companion book to the PBS series of the same name, written by Donald Goldsmith. And he basically outlines here some of the brief... Uh, overviews on just what the nature and size and how our galaxy looks. And he says, except for the closest galaxies to the Milky Way, which is again the one we're in, and including the Andromeda galaxy, all galaxies are receding from us, and the galaxy speed of recession increases in proportion to their distance from us. In other words, all the faraway galaxies are moving away from us, and the further away from us they are, the faster they're moving away from us. And this statement marks the most significant astro astronomical discovery of the 20th century. 
We ourselves are not expanding, nor is the solar system or the Milky Way galaxy or even the local cluster of galaxies. But on the largest distance scales, uh, clusters of galaxies are all receding away from one, from one another. Now, this might be taken to mean that our Milky Way forms the center of the universe, since all galaxies appear to be receding from us. But astronomers philosophically wary since Copernicus's time of assigning a special place to our planet or our sun or collection of stars, they prefer a different assumption, and they call that the cosmological principle. Now, don't expect to remember any of this. This is just to get a feel of, of what people are looking at in, in learning about the universe. And according the, to the uh, cosmological principle, our view of the universe is what they call representative, just like democratic government supposed to be. And that is that any observer anywhere else should see what we do. Galaxies receding away from the observer at speeds proportional to their distance from the observer. And if we adopt the cosmological principle, then the cosmos must be expanding everywhere since every observer sees a universe of receding galaxies. In other words, the entire universe is expanding. Now, if you're picturing this as an expansion similar to that, say, of a balloon, with the universe being inside the balloon, I'm told that that would not quite be the right visual. As I understand it, if you're going to use the, the balloon analogy of an expanding universe, then you should be picturing the universe as just the skin of the balloon only, just the rubber part that's expanding. And, uh, yeah, I just said that to confuse things even more, but that's the part that they say would be expanding. And according to the book, it says if, if the universe is expanding, things must have been closer together in the past. So if you ran the movie backwards in your mind and you reach a time approximately 15 billion years ago when everything occupied a single point. Now, if you can even get your head around what that means. Of course, that's the moment we call the Big Bang, and it marks the limit of how far back into the past we can reasonably extrapolate from our observations and our, about our assumptions of the universe. Now, the universe might have existed before the Big Bang, but for now, we don't know what it was doing then. We do know, based on our best understanding of the universe, that the Big Bang did not occur somewhere, but everywhere. In other words, not only all matter in the universe, but all space as well was packed together in the Big Bang. Since that primeval explosion, space has gone on expanding. New spaces continually come into being between the groups of matter that we call clusters of galaxies. So you have this continuous creation of new space, and, and which avoids the apparent dilemma that arises when you tell someone about the Big Bang. You know, when they say, where then did the Big Bang occur? Uh, if space just sat there, kind of immutable and unchanging, the question would make sense. Astronomers would be forced to point to somewhere special in space, like over there, you know? But the locale of the Big Bang, but that would violate the cosmological principle, the rule that cos of cosmic democracy, as they call it, that states that all places are basically equal. Uh, so by imagining, if you can, that all of space participated equally in the Big Bang, you achieve a head start towards the notion that no one point in space can claim to be the center of the universe. Instead, every point in space has an equal claim to centrality and all participated in the Big Bang. And, you know, it's very difficult to grasp, but it works both mathematically and logically. In fact, the basic theory of the expanding universe had been derived by Albert Einstein and others even before Hubble discovered the universal expansion. But no one took the, th the theory too seriously until Hubble's observational support for it emerged. What seems still more unimaginable is the question of whether the universe is infinite or finite. 
And no one, it turns out, lacks an intuitive feeling on this question, but of course in this area uh, intuition can be very misleading. If the universe is infinite, that means it extends forever in all directions. This may seem satisfying, but consider that an infinite universe, every variant or any object or any event that is possible, must occur. No matter how small the probability, so long as it's not exactly zero, of a particular event's occurrence, the fact that the universe is infinitely large implies that the event will occur an infinite number of times. So in an infinite, in an infinite universe, they suggest, uh, you know, this radio show would exist in every conceivable language with every conceivable nuance, in every language of every planet, an infinite number of times in every variation, as would listeners and readers of books and things, you know. But th this unbelievable result of the assumption of an infinite universe, which follows from the nature of infinity, emphasizes dif the difficulty, they say, of conceiving of an either a finite or infinite universe. And, of course, sure, some, something's probability may be very small, let's say one in a trillion, and over in an infinite period of time, it'll happen one in a trillion times, but over infinity, that one in a trillion happens an infinite number of times. However, all the other things that happen more frequently still happen more than that infinity. So you have different infinities, and that's where you get into interesting conversations on that. In a finite universe, space curves back on itself like the surfaces of the Earth, so that the voyagers moving in a, quote, straight line eventually find themselves back at their starting point. This can be true even though space has nothing to curve into. That is, we cannot hope to step back into an added dimension as we can to admire the curved surface of the Earth. And a finite universe has nothing outside it. Mind-boggling though this curved space, uh, the curved space of a finite universe may be, astronomers do consider it a serious possibility. Now, I'm really running short of time. I'm definitely not going to get into the whole philosophical part of this because I was just about to lead into that, but there is an interesting Interesting observation. You know how we always go back and I talk about philosophy going all the way back to Aristotle. And just an observation on Aristotle's observations himself. And this is by John Herman Randall from a book called Aristotle. Quote, it's fascinating to speculate how Aristotle might have saved us several centuries of gross confusion and error. Where we today are often groping, Aristotle was very clear and suggestive, and this holds true of many of his analyses, his doctrine of natural teleology, his view of a natural necessity as not simple and mechanical but hypothetical, his conception of the infinite as potential, not actual, which we'll be getting into later, his notion of a finite universe, his doctrine of natural place, his conception of time as not absolute but as a dimension, the fourth dimension, a system, the system, the measurement, his conception that place is a coordinate system and hence relative. He understood all those things way back then, 2,000 years ago, plus. So on countless problems, even from the standpoint of present theory, Aristotle was right, writes the author, where the 19th century Newtonian physicists were wrong. And I'm certainly not going to leave this issue there because it certainly fits into all issues of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, how we think about things and how we view the world around us. And of course, ultimately, it all leads into how we govern ourselves in our daily lives and how we survive. And that's it for this week, folks, as we wrap it up for another one. And we hope you will join us again next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, think right, and act right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be...
very nice to be here nonetheless. I am from Wales. I remember one night I dreamt it stopped raining. You never forget that first dry dream, do you?